is Terry Crosby. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Good day, listeners. Thank you for joining us again for this fine day. Uh, It's good to be in your presence, Terry. We have a special guest on the line. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I think you guys have been friends for some time, so this is going to be good. A good conversation uh, with Mary Jo Sharp. Mary Jo is an assistant professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University and is the founder of Confident Christianity Apologetics. Uh, She's an international speaker and debater. She is on the faculty of Summit Ministries Student Conferences and a guest lecturer with Ravi Zacharias Ministries. And we're going to discuss today her book that just came out, Why I Still Believe, A Former Atheist Reckoning with the Bad Reputations Christians Give a Good God. So happy to have you on the line. Welcome. Hey, guys. So good to be with you. Now, this is is weird for me because... uh, you're down in Portland, Oregon now. Yes. Which is my stomping ground. So I feel like I should be there and that you should be in Houston. Now, you were living in Houston for a while. Help me to understand how you've found yourself from Houston over into Portland. <laughs> yeah, we were down in Houston. My husband is, he was a worship pastor for many years and uh, he has a doctorate of spiritual formation and for some time has been desiring to move into more educational role in the church and discipleship role. So we've been looking for how we could best fulfill that desire with him. And uh, there was a church up here in Portland that had been failing for some time. And it's actually in my hometown of Beaverton, which is the southwest part of Portland. So we're in talks with them about, you know, what can we do to help with revitalization? And so really what we're doing up in Portland is my husband has taken an associate pastor position to do a revitalization. That's awesome. I love the fact that you're originally from the Portland area. I'm originally from the Portland area. I've got to ask, though, a couple things. First of all, where is your favorite spot in Portland? Like, this is your go-to Mary Jo time. Oh, wow. Well, there's one spot from my childhood that I would say was a go-to, which um, was a, the Rose Gardens, Washington Park. Okay. Um, but as I've grown older, I like to see all the mountains. So that would be Piddock Mansion. Okay. My mom... <laughs> she just when I was there just uh, last year, she brought me and the kids up there. She loves the Piddock Mansion. For me, growing up, it was the Clackamas River, getting a good float on a hot day down the Clackamas <laughs> yeah. River. Now, I've also got to ask you, what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen in Portland? I'll go first. See if you can <laughs> see if you can top this one. I once saw, and as a kid, I saw this, and I never thought it was weird till I left Portland. I saw a man riding a giant unicycle, so one of those is like extra tall, wearing a Darth Vader costume going down the road. Uh, <laughs> Try to beat that. I can't. That's an image that? right there. Okay, I can't beat it because the Unipiper, who's the guy that you just described, is like, I'm a fangirl. I even have a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So he's kind of like, that's my go-to guy. Other than that, though, might be the cat wrapper 
the guy that raps, but he walks around with a bunch of cats. So the cat rapper in Portland might be weirder than the Eagle Piper. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I okay, love I'm it. starting to understand Andy a little better yeah. coming from Portland, so this is good. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, let's get into your book here. I am excited to talk about this. Yeah, I mean, this is a really great book. It's really uh, digestible, easy to read, very uh, inviting, I guess. But I understand when you first got approached by the publisher, you really didn't want to do this book. So what led you to do this book in the end? <laughs> yeah, I really didn't want to do this book because it's much easier to uh, just look at the arguments, right? Put your arm out in front of you and say, hey, look at the arguments, don't look at me. And that was why I didn't want to write it because I didn't want to bring people into the messiness of my life, into my mind and how I struggle with things. But when I started to understand how this book could actually help people uh, and how it could, in, in a couple of ways, one was that it would help them be introduced to apologetics. So I started to understand that there might be people who would pick this up who wouldn't normally just pick up a book, you know, in apologetics where every chapter answers a different question or something like that. That really was exciting to me. And then I also thought that it might help some people as far as healing in the church, like understanding that, yes, this is the problem of hypocrisy of believers, but it is also a problem that is not uncommon to man. This is something that is common and that you'll experience when you, be, when you become a part of a community. And so I was hoping maybe to help with some, you know, some aspects of healing for people who have grown up in church and you know, around these people and are, have, are struggling with Christians and struggling with Christianity. So this is a very personal book because there's a lot of uh, stories about your life and just coming to the faith as well as going through the church. But you were once a former atheist. How, how did that change? What was the, what's the story that uh, uh, starting there? Yeah, so uh, my former atheism, and, and Andy can probably attest to my strain of atheism as coming out of Portland. I was more of a cultural atheist. I was just raised outside of church in an area of the country that's not very churched. And my atheism is sort of non-theism. I didn't believe in God. I wasn't angry with religion. I wasn't angry with Christians. But I did have this sort of sense of um, wonder and awe at the beauty that I saw all around me in uh, the Pacific Northwest. And my dad nurtured that with a love of the outdoors. He loved to take me camping all up and down the coast. He also had fostered this love of the arts and sciences. And so I was impacted by the amount of profound beauty I saw in the arts and sciences. And I think that sort of um, tilled the ground, the soil, for me asking the harder questions of, well, what is this all for? How do I know that any of this has meaning? And why do I say that my life is meaningful? And at that time, I had a Christian teacher in my high school who I greatly respected. He was my band director, so my music teacher. And he took a chance to witness to me and gave me my first Bible and said, when you go off to college, you're going to have hard questions. I hope you'll turn to this. So I started reading the Bible, and that was over the course of a few years, I started to also go to church. Like I went off to um, college and began you know, to explore faith, which is sort of the opposite story of a lot of uh, kids. And I, I eventually came to the point where I heard the, a clear presentation of the gospel. It started to make sense to me, and I trusted Jesus for my salvation. It brought together all those pieces of finding the artist and the intelligence behind all of that meaning and purpose and wonder. 
Mary Jo, one of the things that you talk about in the book, this is one of the main points, I, I as I would see it, <laughs> I hate to, don't want to put words in your mouth here, <laughs> is the struggle in faith dealing with Christians. I, I like the way on the back of the book you put it, you say, for those who feel the ever-present tension between the beauty of salvation and the dark side of human nature, why I still believe is a candid and approachable case for believing in God when you really want to walk away. Tell me about that. So, you, right now, you've, you've shared, you know, here you've come to faith, but when does the dark side begin in your journey? <laughs> That's the interesting part for me in reflecting on this, is it began from the very first day I set foot in the church as a brand new believer. So, my first experience going into worship, uh, when I'm going to proclaim to the church that I have become a new believer, starts with being judged for what I'm wearing. So I'm told that as I'm walking into the sanctuary, the pastor's wife takes, uh, she looks at me, gives me the up and down once over and says, oh, honey, we need to find you better clothes. So, (laughs) I mean, from the very beginning, I have this distrust growing in me of people in the church, the leadership, um, that I don't really see a strong commitment to the scripture that they profess as God's word and absolutely true. And so that sort of disconnect that I see between the life, uh, lives of the believers and the, what they say that they are accountable to, that over several years um, starts to cause me to distrust that people really believe what they say. Then I start to take a hard look on, well, why do I say it's true? And I didn't have any good answers for things like, well, why do I think, I would have said something like, why do I think God's real, you know, or why the Bible when there's so many other things? I would have asked those kinds of questions. And when I'm talking about the dark side of human nature that thrust me into this journey, it's the judgmentalism, the hypocrisy, the wallowing around in vices with that, like unapologetically wallowing in vice and not even caring and even trying to justify and rationalize vices. That was the kind of stuff, the dark side, where I began to think, if these people really believed this was true, they would at least feel remorse. They would at least feel apologetic for the ways that they've behaved. But instead, I saw them pulling into those behaviors uh, and just, you know, getting worse instead of trying to become better or more Christ-like. Like there was no, almost no sanctification going on. There's a, a great quote that you have in chapter one that you, you, you kick this thing off with, Daniel Taylor, the skeptical believer. He writes, I'm not thinking so much of the historical failures of the church, inquisitions, crusades, burning people at the stake, and the like, as of personal experience with hypocrisy, legalism, intolerance, and other besetting sins within the body of believers. And I think a lot of people can relate with this. You know, we're not talking about, okay, things that the church has done in the past that we're wrestling through. Uh, What you're getting at is, no, this is what I was experiencing in the church from day one, where you're seeing there's this disconnect between what they're saying and how they're living, or the Christ that you're reading about in the Bible versus the Christians that are in the church. How do you go about navigating that? Like, What did that journey look like for you as you're trying to understand this tension? Yeah, that's a really big question. (laughs) That's a long journey because it's completely messy. And I don't even know that I'm trying to navigate it in the start, right? I just, I don't, 
I'm upset. I don't like what's going on, but I don't know how to, I don't have language for it. I don't know how to put words to it. I just know that what I'm seeing is not what I think should be, should be right. So over time, as I get into answering my own questions, as I start to discover things like the problem of evil, uh, as I start to discover more deeply human nature and what it means to be fallen, I start to understand some things about what I'm seeing in the church, about how this is the status of mankind. You know, this is why Jesus is going to the cross to die for us, because we're the ones that want to do good, but we're not going to do good. You know, even like Paul says, you know, he's not doing the good that he wants to do. And this is the reality of a world. Uh, if Christianity is true, this is the reality that we are fallen and we are prone to sin and vice. And so I start to, that starts to make more sense to me. And I start to see that, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what's going to happen. And I had, basically, I had naive, unrealistic expectations coming into church that the beauty I saw all around me, the goodness and truth that the people in the church were going to be the people who were uh, the best at searching for goodness, truth, and beauty and committed themselves to that. What I didn't understand was that they were also human and what that entailed and how um, humans are going to hurt you. And that's part of the, you know, that's part of the deal of being human. So the more deeply I studied apologetics and my faith and understanding what it is I believe and why I believed it, the more it started to overlay onto my daily living, right? It started to impress my daily living that, yeah, right. Christians are going to hurt me. I'm going to hurt other people. And this is the way it is until Christ comes again. Even when we say you're not enslaved to sin, you don't have to sin, right? None of us is going to be able to live that perfect life. And this is why we see Jesus on the cross for us. So it was, it's a big one. That's a big question, Andy, because we could talk about just this part for several podcasts. Yeah, I think you taught, you've touched on an important aspect of it, though, because, I, you know, as a pastor, I've heard this so many times where people say, oh, I don't want to come to church because there's too many broken, messed up people there. And it seems to me that one of the aspects of the brokenness of church that's so often neglected is that you are part of the brokenness. Right, that we have to be honest with ourselves that yes, there there are broken people at church, but you're part of that brokenness. There are times where you're gonna be the one that hurts somebody else's feelings or breaks relationship, such that you you know, you really get the sense, if I understand you correctly, that church then is this constant there's this constant need for reconciling with one another that's taking place in that messiness. Yeah, there's the constant need for um, the kingdom of heaven now, right? Like Christ says, the kingdom of heaven is upon you if he is who he is. So he brought, he's in breaking redemption into the world. We need that, that redemption. And what was striking to me as I was considering, yeah, you know, I don't need this. I don't need this group of this community of hypocrites. I don't need this in my life. I, w- I had to think about, well, what does that mean if I walk away from it? So Within the Christian framework, there is the potential for me to actually, you know, have the power of Christ, that redemption uh, factor. But if I walk away from that, what does atheism have to offer me in these situations? And, you know, I'm looking at Bertrand Russell. I'm looking at Dawkins. And basically they're saying, I love the way that Dawkins frames it in a river out of Eden. And I'm just paraphrasing, but he's like, there's no good or evil in the universe. There's no right or wrong. There's no justice. And, you know, some people get hurt and other people get lucky. And that's just the way it is. So within that framework, there's no um, hope for change. 
Um, when people get hurt, yeah. I mean, this is nature is a red with tooth and claw, right? It's just, this is the way things are. And I thought, do I really believe that? Do I really believe that there's no rhyme or reason to any of this, that there's no way we should act? There's nothing better. There's no way that people, why should people re- be redemptive in that situation? Well, I don't have a, a grounding for that in atheism. I just, uh, because I like it or because I say so. And that started to have a huge impact on me that, yeah, I see this body of believers that are hypocritical, but I, even that understanding that they're being hypocrites, that they're not living up to a moral standard they profess, was sitting squarely within a Christian framework. And I couldn't move away from that to the atheist framework, which just said, ah, there's no rhyme or reason to it. You know, some people just get hurt. So that was a big impact in, on me and how I was going to engage in the future with the church. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi, listeners. This is Andy Steiger. I just wanted to remind you that I have a new children's book out that I co-authored with Rachel McKenzie called What Am I Worth? You can pick it up at Amazon or ApologeticsCanada.com. As well, I have a new book coming out in September with Zondervan. The title is Reclaimed, How Jesus Humanizes in a Dehumanized World. As you know, we are living in a challenging time, but I believe with great opportunities for sharing the gospel. This book uniquely uses our humanity to discuss the gospel and what a life of flourishing in Christ looks like that I believe is desperately needed in our world. If you would like to learn more about this resource and help us get the word out, please consider becoming a part of our book launch team and help us get this resource into people's hands. Those that participate will get an early edition of the book and have the opportunity to learn and interact with me on its content. If you would like to participate, let us know by emailing info at apologeticscanada.com. And now, back to the podcast. I want to talk about the future of the church, and I want to go a little bit deeper into this, into an area that it might even be a little uncomfortable for some of our listeners to think about. You and I met up the other day. We, we saw each other at uh, ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society. And we were at uh, this breakfast thing, and you and I were talking forever because I, I had seen that your book was out, and and we were discussing, you know, your book and everything that uh, that you've been processing and thinking about uh, with regards to it. And one of the aspects that we talked about is life in the church when you're working in the church. So, you know, for yourself being a pastor's wife, and for me, you know, I've been a pastor for 18 years, and you see behind the curtain and i've often said uh, i've i've often said to my wife man i wish i didn't know what was going on behind the scenes i'd love i'd love just to come to church and just sit in a pew and, and not know any of the uh, politics uh, of what's going on because the truth is and this is something that's difficult to grapple with is that the the brokenness that you see you know amongst people who are new in the faith there's also brokenness that you'll see even with people who've been in the faith for a while, that you even see with pastors. That you're like, man, I wouldn't have thought I would see this with them. And for me, you know, I remember as a young pastor, that was something that I had to wrestle with. The first two pastors I worked with disqualified themselves from ministry for sexual reasons that I won't get into, but man, was that hard for me to process. What about yourself and your own journey with seeing behind the curtains? Yeah, I think you're hitting on a, a huge issue um, that we all need to sort of grapple with and, and should be spoken about openly in the church is that 
I'm sort of backing up a little bit. This is why we need to teach on the problem of evil and how it affects everyone so that we can develop this like sort of theology of sin or theology of brokenness, right? That this is who we are as people. And for me, you know, starting out, I have the same reaction you do, which, or you did, which was like, wow, nobody's good. Nobody's living this out. Nobody, like, I don't know if that's exactly what you have, but that's what I was thinking. I was like, wow, who's living this out? Who can do this? And, you know, and I think part of that was my naivety and what I was expecting. Like, so I was saying, oh, yay, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and he rose from the dead and defeated death. And it was just more like something I was saying. I wasn't really deeply thinking on what that meant. How does that impact my current existence in this world and around all these people? What does that actually mean when God himself has to die on a cross for our sin? And I wasn't really processing that at a deep level. That means that people are going to be that bad, right? That's where we're at. And there's a couple of things that helped me think on this. And um, one of them was Clay Jones' work on uh, the problem of evil. Clay Jones is a professor at Biola University. And he he talks about how um, when he started researching the problem of evil, he looked at genocides in the world. He started doing genocide research. And what he came to discover about genocide, um, and he talks about this in his book, Why Does God Allow Evil? He says, you know, Every researcher of genocide and every victim or survivor, I guess you could say, of genocide has said that it's not the monster of a person that does this. It's the average human being that commits genocide. And I thought about that and was like, yeah, see, that's what we don't spend enough time talking about. And, you know, when you put a human being into a situation where they're at a higher level of stress, like a leader in anything, whether it's business or the Christian church, it doesn't matter. When you start putting leaders into these high levels of stress and responsibility, the temptation for failure in many ways is even greater because they're under so much stress. And so I wasn't processing these kinds of things because I had never been taught to think well on them. So a lot of people see the workings of the church inside the church, and there's a lot of people leaving the church now. So a lot of people having doubts and wanting to move beyond the church. You say in your book, it says, uh, that's the thing that I don't see when I am reading deconversion stories or stories of people leaving the faith. They talk about what they're leaving, but they don't really talk about the atheistic worldview into which they are stepping. Can you kind of expound on this area? Yeah, that's, and I mentioned a little bit about that earlier, is that when I'm hearing deconversion stories, they're all talking about what they've discovered and, you know, I don't believe this about the Bible or I don't believe that or how can you believe this? And it's, it's all Christian focused. What they don't show us is this robust investigation into what they would be stepping into if they leave the church. And my problem as I was looking at this, um, you know, if I wanted just to step away, was that I had this sneaking suspicion that I would be taking a lot of Christianity into my worldview with me because atheism doesn't provide that robust enough framework for things like the existence of good and evil, how I can trust my own reasoning skills. There's no grounding for that. There's a lot of problems or voids that I saw in the atheist framework Whereas, you know, I was a person who cared about morality. I was a person who cared about the life of the mind. And I realized I needed to have a place to ground these kind of ideas. So for the people who are listening, I said, you know, I, I couldn't ground my reasoning. Well, in, in atheism, 
rationality comes from non-rationality, comes from uh, the blind and personal processes of natural selection. So it's not a truth-making mechanism. It's actually just a survival mechanism. So if something false gets in there that's fit for survival, that it's going to stay with us. It's not, it's, our rationality is not for make, finding truth necessarily, but for survival. And those are the kinds of grounding issues that I found myself saying, hey, I can't go over to atheism. And, and I don't hear these deconversion stories talking about things like that. Like, hey, how am I now going to ground the value or sanctity of human life now that I've stepped away from my Judeo-Christian ethic? I'm not hearing those kind of conversations. And that, that's concerning to me. Frank Turek wrote a book called Stealing from God, in which he's talking about how people want to you know, have their atheism and their Christian ethic, too. And I think that's, that's a conversation that we need to have. Don't you think, too, a part of the impetus, you know, is they, somebody wants to leave the church for, right, maybe they've been hurt or they're angry. And, and so, you know, sometimes they'll go to a different church or they'll just leave the church. And there's this kind of this naive idea that, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find something better or I'm going to find, you know, that, oh, there's messed up people here. Oh, there must not be messed up people, you know, over there. And then there's this moment, I guess, for myself that as I've worked through my my own thoughts on this, where you start to realize, no, 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 I, and this gets back to the point you're making of understanding evil, is that brokenness is everywhere. So, the, this idea that wherever you're going to go, you're going to meet broken and messed up people. But I want to know, in, in that, Mary Jo, what is it, though, that keeps drawing you back to the church, and what makes the church different? What makes the church different? <laughs> That's a great question. One of the things that keeps drawing me back is um, that Christ died for us. He died for the church. He died for people to come back to him. And the church are the people who are supposedly professing that they are embracing that gift of salvation and that they want to live in this redeemed community. If I were to step away from that, I'm not entering into a community that's seeking that, right? That's acknowledging that. So my, the community that I have for hopefully finding people who want to seek after Christ-likeness or seek that, bringing that redemptiveness into the world, that is the church. Um, and that's Daniel Taylor talks about how he has another quote where he says that what's, again, I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it right in front of me, but he says, you know, like basically what's surprising is not that the church suffers from every kind of failing common to mankind, but that she's still the main instrument of God's work on the earth. Uh, that at the same time as that she's failing, she's also still that main instrument, mm-hmm. uh, that, that city on the hill, the light uh, that we're bringing into the world of the truth of Christ. And so that's what draws me back to her, for one. The other is that I know I need community. I know I need accountability because everything we're talking about, and you mentioned this earlier, Andy, I'm susceptible to. I'm susceptible to the brokenness. I'm susceptible to vices and evil I'm susceptible to trying to rationalize everything that I want to do and all of my desires, whether even the desires that are off um, from the goodness of God. Uh, So I need accountability. And what draws me back into the church is that community that is there. And it is absolutely broken. And it is absolutely going to fail me over and over. That's 100%. (laughs) I can bank on that. So what do I do about it? And I've worked through like, well, this is Jesus's sermon on the Mount, Luke six. 
where he's talking about love your enemies, do good to those who aren't doing good to you, where he talks about doing to others what you want for them to do to you. And he didn't say, he actually caveat it. He didn't say like only when they do good back. He says, if you only do good when others are doing good to you, then what good is that? Because even the sinners do that. So there you go, church. There's your impetus. <laughs> <laughs> He's talking about the church, the believers. You have to do good to others, even when they're not doing good to you. And we need people to do that in the church um, because a lot of people are walking away because they don't see that in action. I so appreciate just this honesty that, hey, listen, yeah, there's broken people in the church. We are broken. And it is this continual process, right, of humbling ourselves and of seeking to love even even when we've been wronged. And one of the things that I think of, uh, you know, as we're talking about this that I find so interesting about the church is, A, I think we have to be careful that we don't sugarcoat the church now or historically. The truth is, is there have been times historically and currently where the church has gotten it wrong. But one of the things I've found so fascinating in my historical studies is that it's often the case that when the church has gotten something wrong, that it's been the church that's challenged the church of what it's gotten wrong. It's such an interesting idea that we see that not only historically, but we see that even in the church, that there are going to be times where we get something wrong and somebody comes alongside of us, right, as we walk in community, and they can walk with us in that brokenness. They can counsel us in, in that. In the, and there's times where, there, where we need to just be challenged and said, hey, man, you, you need to make that right. There is need for reconciliation here. And it's interesting, isn't it, that communion has always been one of those impetus where, hey, you need to make sure your relationship with the Lord's right, but communion is a reminder that we're having a family meal here, and you need to make sure that your relationship with one another is right. Yeah, what a great picture. Yeah, thank you for bringing communion into that, into the history of the church, because, yeah, I did notice with deconversion stories, there's a lot of church bashing that goes on that seems to fail to recognize the reality of church history, which does have a lot of problems, but also has a lot of corrections. And uh, like Paul Copan's J-shaped cultures, which is a Jesus-shaped culture talk in which he talks about all the good that Christianity has brought into the world of educating women and, you know, dealing with slavery and uh, bigotry and racism and all sorts of, and bringing hospitals all over the world. It's just, um, you don't get to have one without the other, right? Absolutely. I, Love this book, Mary Jo, as you and I were talking about it at ETS. I firmly believe that there is a need for this just honest approach to the Christian life, not trying to sugarcoat it, but also not trying to bash it and just, you know, walking people through what does this actually look like? And I appreciate you being vulnerable and using your own life in doing that. Uh, was that difficult? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm asking because I know it was difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. So the, here, let me just say a few things. But the difficulty of it was, one, you know, when you get into academic work, you want everybody to respect you. So, you know, uh, going through the difficulty of your emotions has this, like, connotation that, well, you know, it wasn't just an objective intellectual endeavor. But it's a realistic endeavor because there's no, like, I can't divorce my intellect from my emotion ever. So there's a struggling that goes on with desires in there. 
And then, you know, it was just hard to go back through the history of all the hurt because we've been in, my husband and I have been married 26 years and we've been in ministry for most of that time. And so going back through all of that brought up a lot of hurt. There were some arguments that ensued. There was my husband saying, <laughs> reading chapters and going, that's not how it went down. <laughs> and then I had to go, go back and change. And, uh, you know, and then there was the potential to hurt people who had been in my former churches. And that wasn't enough. I didn't want to do that either. Um, but I thought that the potential to help, the potential to have some healing was worthwhile, was worth this endeavor. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I want to just encourage our listeners why I still believe a former atheist reckoning with the bad reputation Christians give a good God is an excellent read. We want to recommend that to you. You can get that on Amazon. But where else can people go, Mary Jo, if they want to hear more from you and your ministry? Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, they can go to my website, which is just my name, MaryJoSharp.com. Uh, they can definitely go there. They can also, uh, I'm a professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. And so if they're interested in pursuing apologetics at a deeper level, they can go to hbu.edu slash MAA and find out more about our fully online program in apologetics. And if you weren't busy enough, I know that you have just begun a doctorate program as well, haven't you? Yes, because I'm insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, God bless you in that as you begin. I am so thankful to be ending. And uh, we look forward to reading more of your work in the future. I'm sure you've got plenty more books to write and that you're, you're thinking about, especially out of this research that you're going to be doing now in these next couple of years. But great having you on the show. We look forward to having you back again. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is the Ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about.